the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined, as always, by Lee Johnson and Jason Reed. And today we are talking about human nature. But before we do that, as usual, our bartender is standing by waiting for drink orders, and I'd like to hear what you're ranting or raving about. Lee, let's start with you. What are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving? I think I'm just going to have a water today because hydration, hydration, hydration. And I am ranting about, I guess, inflation. (laughs) Really ranting that the rent's too damn high, but (laughs) just everything's too damn expensive. So I'm just going to blame it on inflation. The flesh. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I am going to have a dark and stormy because I'm just feeling storm clouds all around. And I am going to rant as well. And I'm going to rant about outsourcing. Specifically, the tendency for universities, like the one where I work, to continually outsource services to different companies, services like cleaning and maintenance Mm -hmm. of copiers. And this seems to hinge on two fictions. One is the university seems to believe there's some way that this can be done cheaper, And these companies seem to exist based on the idea there's some way they could squeeze more profits out of this by innovating or whatever. But there's no innovation happening. People are still Mm -hmm. cleaning toilets the same way they always have (laughs) cleaned toilets. And all they're really doing is just treating workers worse and worse every time they get a new company. And I just wish people would accept that some things just cost the way they cost. You can't innovate or don't use innovation when all you really mean is treating workers worse. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, today I'm going to try a new cocktail for me. It's called Fall from the Tree. It's a little spicy, a little brown licory, and it's right up my alley. Today I am raving about the songs and songwriting of Burt Bacharach. So, you know, I listen to a lot of jazz vocalists and particularly female vocalists, and it just suddenly struck me how many of my favorite songs have been written by Burt Bacharach. What an incredible contribution he has made to the great American songbook. So here's to you, Burt. Say a little prayer for you. (laughs) So, Jason, I know we're talking about human nature, but how are we going to approach this? Well, in some ways, you know, the history of philosophy can be understood as one long rumination on the question of human nature. Throughout its history, philosophers have put forward multiple definitions of what it means to be human and what sets humans apart from other animals, such as political animal, rational animal, tool-making animal, working animal, etc. But these definitions have come under increasing scrutiny for the way they both maintain hierarchies separating humanity from non-human animals, as well as the way they maintain hierarchies within human societies as rationality tools and politics become ways of demarcating those who are more or less human. So is it possible to dispense with this idea of human nature, or is it an unavoidable question framing how we understand ourselves in relation not just to animals, but our own increasingly intelligent machines? In other words, Human nature can't live with it, can't live without it.
the things I find interesting about the question of human nature is that it's not like we are riddled with debates and concerns about what's the nature of a chair and what's tree nature and what's planet nature. So, Jason, why do you think it's of specific concern to philosophers that we struggle over this question of human nature and not the nature of all other things? Well, I think one reason is whenever human nature is brought up as an explanation for something, it kind of stops thought and debate. Like if you Mm. say, oh, you know, human beings are always defined by a desire to maximize power, for example, and that's why we're having all these political conflicts or that's why all politicians are corrupt. It just sort of stops and you get there and there's nothing more to say because it's human nature. What are you going to do about it? You can't change it. You can't alter it. And so human nature functions as a very different kind of rhetorical device when the nature of chairs. I mean, I guess maybe at some point if you're trying to like use a chair to like sled down a hill on, people might say to you, hey, stop doing that. It's not gonna, It's a chair. I can't do that. It's chair nature you're going against. <laughs> and we do occasionally try to use things for things they're not intended for. The other day, I hammered in some nails with a serving spoon. Did not go well, but I couldn't find a hammer. <laughs> um, and I was violating the nature of the spoon. But by and large, human nature seems to f- function as a question because once it's answered, it seems to answer so many other questions about politics, about ethics, about how we should act or how we can be expected to act. I'm always struck by the quickness with which some people get to human nature. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the unwillingness people have and I guess by people, I should be fair. I mean students. This is what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> students this is where are people too. Yes. Uh, but students, it's in their nature, one might say, <laughs> to turn to questions of human nature where I would want to talk about political, social, economic forces, historical situations. All that stuff just sort of goes by the wayside and quickly we claim, hey, it's human nature. And the way that some people seem so willing to – claim they know what human nature is, is really striking. Uh, You know, there's that great Emma Goldman line, the greater the charlatan, the more quickly they are to have recourse to human nature. And then she goes on to talk about how she compares human nature to like going to a zoo and thinking you know what the animals are like. Mm. You might go to the zoo and conclude that tigers sure do a lot of pacing, that it's in the nature (laughs) of a tiger to pace back and forth. I like the way that you set that up, Jason, by saying that The tendency is to say, well, that's human nature. What are you going to do? That it's this sort of shrug, quietist answer to things. Because it just seems to me to be totally contrary to like everything we know scientifically. Whatever humans are is not immutable. Mm. I mean, even down to our genetics is not unchangeable. Just because it's in the nature of something doesn't mean that it is unchangeable. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what function we think this phrase, human nature, as if nature is something that exists and can't be tampered with and can't be changed and therefore sets the conditions for every natural thing's nature. That was a bit convoluted, but you know what I mean? what What does that phrasing do for us? For me, what's interesting is when Jason said uh, it's amazing how quickly people get to human nature, I find 
that people, and again, I also mean students, <laughs> are all really sure that what human nature is is that we're inherently selfish or we're inherently yeah. self-interested. And yeah. then it's like, bam, so now you can't tell me I should be concerned about the common good. You can't mm-hmm. tell me that I should struggle with you over values and so on because, well, it's just human nature. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was recently reading a new translation of Heidegger's Habilitationsschrift, which in Germany is like a second dissertation. And he wrote it on medieval philosophy. And one of the things I was struck by was his claim that in the Middle Ages, there was no sense of the individual. And I Mm -hmm. think that's entirely correct. And therefore, they would never have said that human nature is to be self-interested or selfish. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there was no sense of the individual. Well, I mean, how do you ha- how do you have kings if there's no sense of the individual? I mean, serious question. Well, no, I mean, so there it's in a strange way the king is not king because the king is an individual. The king is king because of fulfilling a certain role within a highly ordered and structured society and economic organization and political organization. And so really, as it were, the job of king is not ever attached to the individual person, but it is itself an office. Now, obviously, they had a sense that, you know, I'm Rick and you're Lee and he's Jason, and so we're three different individuals, but that what it is that makes us who we are and what makes us human is never based in ourselves as individuals first and then together second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's where we get the royal we. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, exactly. One of the things about the claim you brought up, and I'm glad you brought this up, Rick, that often it's not just any definition of human nature that's put forward in our society. It's we are selfish, self-interested. That's the definition, you know, kind of homo economicus or homo competitivus or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) Um, And David Graeber, the anthropologist, points out that that description of how we act doesn't even adequately capture our day-to-day interactions in our society. He gives the example, if you're walking down the street and someone asks you directions or the time or something, you don't turn to them and say, I do know that. And what's in it for you? You don't try to maximize your interest over the scarce information. If you know, you just tell them and you do it without a second thought and that there are all these sort of day-to-day interactions, a cooperation that are effaced when we say human beings are fundamentally competitive. And even in places where you'd think you'd find it, like in economic relations like work, you know, a lot of things that people do in their day-to-day jobs is they're just trying to help everyone else get through the day. There may be some competition around the edges around like bonuses or whatever, or there may be instituted forms of competition by like making everyone a temp worker or independent contractor. But a lot of what people do, even in the place where you expect to find competition the most at a workplace is they just want to get through the day and they just want to help other people get through the day in this reciprocal relationship. So that the competition answer, you know, which I think there's a lot of reasons why that's where people go to, but the interesting thing is we don't just need to go back to the medieval ages to see like a place where it wouldn't show up. It doesn't even fit adequately for us because mm. if it did, on some level, society wouldn't function if we all acted that way all the time. I completely agree with you. And the argument itself is often quite slippery when people use it. So people will say human beings are fundamentally self-interested 
And then when I say, well, how did any infant ever survive to adulthood? <laughs> you know, they say, well, they, they give you this long, complicated explanation of how taking care of a child is itself self-interested, you know? And I'm like, well, I mean, anybody could do that, right? right? Like anybody can ex post facto create the argument about how anything is self-interested. But it doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, I, I agree with you. I think it's a sort of stop sign for an argument. Or, sorry, not a stop sign. Something else. It's more like a, a lane merge. Right? <laughs> like So like everybody's got to be in my lane. Right. Now. But that's what's so interesting about the appeal to something like human nature. Because on the one hand, I think what you and Jason are both pointing out is that a certain characterization of it is the nature of the human to be X, so competitive, self-interested, and so on, that then performs a legitimating function. That's why right. I could charge you 60% interest on your credit card. That's why I could outsource your job to a company that's going to pay the worker way less. So on the one hand, it forms that legitimating function, but then it has the structure of a kind of self-evident truth that would allow us to ground other arguments. So like if you look at social contract theorists, they often start with some notion of what human nature is as self-evident and then try to build up from out of their larger and larger social and political structures as a kind of rigorous, logical argument. And so the notion of human nature does both of these duties at the same time. And I think one of them, namely the rhetorical power of the grounding function or mm -hmm. the self-evident truth function, that rhetorical power is then mobilized in this legitimating function. Yeah, all that work. And it would be so much easier just to say under X conditions, humans tend to act in X ways. Right. right. We think. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Some humans. But I think that's what the concept does too. It, it effaces the practices that produce a certain kind of result. I mean, mm. Lee, I thought it was interesting you brought up, you know, a merge lane, you know, because, you know, when you're in a car, you have to act in a very particular kind of way. You have to always be mobilizing for your own place, your own self-interest, you protect yourself, and so on. The very structure of the road dictates a very particular kind of behavior in the same way that under certain circumstances, like contractual relations, as Rick was saying, you are compelled to see yourself as a self-interested individual. Mm, and even right. going back to the Graeber examples that I brought up earlier – Two examples he gives, time and directions. And these are two things that are definitely a part of everyday sociality, but they're also two things that are kind of being phased out by the ubiquity of cell phones, especially cell phones that have maps on them. Like asking for directions seems kind of quaint now. Right. And I think it's interesting. The cell phone is like the automobile you carry in your pocket because it does enforce an idea of not really – turning to people around you for information about the world and increasingly using the device itself. Like, what's this building? I don't need to ask. I'll just look it up. So I guess what I'm saying is like there's this way in which things like cars, things like cell phones, they are practices that produce a set of behaviors. And then when you start talking in human nature, that way of talking 
kind of effaces the production. It's kind of almost a fetish in a sort of Marxist sense, right? It effaces the conditions of its own production, right? Right. It effaces the social relations that have made it possible for us to see ourselves. Because going back to what Rick was saying, like, it's probably very hard for a medieval person to see themselves as an isolated individual because everything they did, they were constantly surrounded by people and depended upon people in all sorts of different ways. But because we tend to black box a lot of our social interactions into machines or technology or behind commodities, it becomes a lot easier for us to say, yep, I'm a competitive, self-interested individual because, you know, we don't have to think about the different ways like being on public transportation is a very different way of being in the world, to be Heideggerian about it, than driving a car. You know, they're two very different ways of seeing yourself in relation to other human beings. Yeah. And the damnness of it all is that argument about human nature does the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. It automates mm -hmm. and outsources mm. and in many ways determines our behaviors right. towards one another. Mm. It sort of cuts off a number of processes, social, political, economic, that have brought about the human as a certain kind of human, brought about human in a certain way. When we say it's human nature, we make that like a metaphysical truth, and therefore how we got to be competitive, how we got to be self-interested is no longer the question, because the answer is, it's my nature. Hey listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Now, back to the conversation. So it strikes me in everything that we've been saying that we may be touching on another way of thinking about human nature. Not human nature as some fixed thing like being competitive or being rational, although we haven't really discussed that, but maybe human nature as being transformable. Maybe the only human nature is second nature. This kind of obscure punk blues band King Face had this lyric, our nature is to change our nature. That maybe what we're talking about is part of what being human is, is this ability to take on new habits, to learn new ways, and to constantly shift. And I guess I wonder, because I find this idea very suggestive, but I wonder, does it solve the question of human nature or does it kind of create its own paradoxes or problems? So does it make sense to think of ourselves as fundamentally changeable, as something unlike a chair or unlike, you know, even another animal which has instincts and drives? We were born into the world undetermined, not really knowing how to do much of anything, and we learn our nature from humans around us and the practices around us. It is is human nature this kind of second nature, I guess. What's interesting about that notion is that if our nature as humans is not original to us at birth, let's say, but mm -hmm. is something that is inculcated, enculturated, and taught, then that also opens the door, of course, for all sorts of social and political structures to be 
mobilized in order to teach me this is your human nature. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, to say that there's a kind of openness to human nature, there's a positive dimension of that, but Mm -hmm. there's also an incredibly negative dimension to that. And I think Judith Butler often points this out, Mm -hmm. that if I'm learning what it is to be human, those who are teaching me are obviously influenced by all sorts of structures that they're going to deliver to me now as my nature. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there is anything essentially true about human beings, except maybe, and I'm kind of borrowing this from Nietzsche and Sartre, except to be engaged in meaning-making projects. Mm. And so, like, I don't even think it's essentially true that it's in human nature to survive or persist. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, that's not Mm -hmm. true. So I suppose, like, I would have to say, yes, of course, it is the case that it's in the nature of human beings to be in constant change. But I'd also think like anything that exists in time is also constantly changing. So I'm not sure that that would distinguish us in any meaningful way. One of the things that worries me about trying to find something essentially true about human beings is that it ignores exactly what you're saying, Jason, that we are always changing. And so whatever kind of essential truths you might want to attach to human beings are in motion. Mm -hmm. Mm. But I think you're getting to a really crucial point here because it seems as if our entire interest in the question of human nature is one, like Lee, you said, I'm not sure that that definition separates us from or picks us out from any other thing that is Mm. in time and marked by time. And I think that's just the point, right? That what we're interested in doing is, I think, two things. One is we're interested in separating the human off from all other things. And then secondly, Mm -hmm. and following from that, we're interested in policing that border. Mm -hmm. Once we've separated them off, now we have to constantly surveil whether something has slipped in or not, and we have to keep track of that border. That's really the main function that the question of human nature is getting at. And I think it's getting at that for both moral ethical reasons and political reasons. And economic reasons. Yeah, I I completely agree with you, Rick. I do think that we are doing a terrible job of drawing those borders and policing them, though, because even on my definition – If there is such a thing as human nature, it's just to be engaged in meaning-making projects. I don't think that that's a nature that is essential or immutable. And as a matter of fact, what I see amongst humans that are surrounding me every day is that they are becoming less and less human in that sense, Mm -hmm. that we're outsourcing and automating all of our engagements with meaning-making projects and in many ways becoming less and less human. And so, you know, we could talk about the extinction of human beings in many ways. This might be one of them. If we become just tools, right, or just, I mean, puppets is a kind of crypto bro word to use, but Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, you know, but if we just outsource the thing that does seem to distinguish us from other kinds of beings, then, yeah, we've drawn borders that are ultimately going to be the cause of our demise. Mm -hmm. Well, we started this discussion with this question I put forward, you know, human nature can't live with it, can't live without it. And now, Lee, you're kind of talking about the can't live without it thing. In the beginning, we sort of talked about why we're especially dissatisfied with the quick and easy human beings are competitive by nature and why we want to jettison that. But now you seem to be pointing out that there is a way in which a loss of the human, right, that if on your definition, humans are engaged in meaning making that 
there is a normative dimension to human nature that's hard to give up, right? It's hard to mm-hmm. not want to say that certain conditions are fundamentally inhuman or certain practices are depriving us or outsourcing human nature. Yeah, so I guess I just want to point out that it seems to be we're talking a little more about the can't live without it side of human nature, that if you throw out human nature, many people have argued you do throw out an ability to be able to say certain things like, you know, take the social nature of human beings. This is why you can say, for example, sustained societal confinement is an inhuman practice, right? It deprives people of a fundamental thing to what it means to be human, which is to interact with other human beings. You know, I do a lot of work with the idea of the post-human in my philosophy and technology classes. And a lot of times when I have this conversation with my students, I'll say, you know, well, If we had to get down to like the absolute bare essentials of what counts as a human being, we usually get down to something like it has to be born and it has to die. So it has to be mortal, right? Right. It has to be embodied. And I eventually sort of coax them into merging into my lane of it has to be engaged (laughs) in meaningful projects, right? Uh But because there are, you know, immense advances being made in, for example, anti-aging technologies right now. Obviously, we've had this long-standing sci-fi fiction about uploading our consciousnesses to the clouds and et cetera. What if we weren't embodied? What if we couldn't die? What I still call those beings human beings. I'm personally not sure. So I'm not 100% attached to those as being essential to the definition of a human. Right now, you know, given that those aren't real possibilities, it does seem like using sort of post-human as a placeholder works. But using that placeholder definitely means that I am implicitly assuming that there are certain essential things that, exactly as you said, without them, human beings wouldn't be. I'm especially suspicious of claims that are made in philosophy and claims that philosophers make about overcoming X or, you know, a critique of X so that we no longer fall into its trap. I could give a couple of examples. The critique of enlightenment rationality. We need to critique this because it has brought about all sorts of problems in the characterization of what it is to be human, what it is to be political, what it is to think, and so on. Another example would be the critique of the subject, that this is an isolated individual and it's brought to us by means of a kind of political project and also economic project, and now is the time we cast that aside. And here I think human nature, I'll throw in with that. While I understand all of those critiques, I'm also a little suspicious about who benefits from the critique of a notion of human nature. And I think, Lee, you put your finger on something, namely, once philosophers begin saying, well, you know, essentialism is a problem, it's exclusionary, it's hierarchical, it's patriarchal, it's probably cis-based, and so on— Once we give up on some notion of human nature, then we open the door for us not only being made tools, but accepting our having become tools as human nature, as what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit torn here about totally throwing out some kind of notion of human nature and holding on to some kind of notion of human nature. I'm not torn about throwing out some particular notions of human nature, Mm -hmm. but I am torn about throwing out 
all exactly mm -hmm. of human nature. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you just sort of illustrated an interesting paradox, which is that our attachment to defining human nature is itself evidence of our cooperative nature. So at least I'm ready to throw out the I'm only a self-interested individual notion of human nature. Right. And I wonder if this is not a place for what Spivak, Gayatri Spivak, would call strategic essentialism. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking that. What's the strategy, though? Resisting the man. <laughs> no. <laughs> Isn't that always the strategy? I didn't check this week's memo, so I guess. <laughs> no, you don't have to check the memo. We always resist the man. <laughs> it seems like the man has a two-pronged attack. The first prong is reducing human nature to a specific ideological idea of competition, self-interest, etc. That's one thing that I think we, we find ourselves confronting in the world around us. But the second prong is how flexibility and mutability itself becomes a tool for reshaping human beings, right? I mean, some of the people who are most interested in overcoming some of the like biological limits of human nature are Silicon Valley types, you know, who are exploring mm. like, hey, if we make the right nutrient-dense shake, we can eliminate meals. <laughs> I'm so ready for that day. I want my Jetson pills. <laughs> or people who are looking into like, is sleep really necessary? Trying to overcome certain natural limitations but in the name of 24-7 working. Mm. So when I said the two-pronged attack, that on the one hand, we are dealing both with definitions of human nature that we want to contest for good reasons because they're reductive, because they don't accurately reflect the complexity of human existence. And on the other hand, another kind of reduction, which is reduction to human beings as anything that we can make them be. Although the second tendency is much less sort of like what happens in philosophical discussions because we're constantly being remade and we don't really notice it. Like going back to thinking about 24-7, think about what electricity and then subsequently 24-7 access to work through emails has already done to our notions of sleep and our practices of sleep and so on. But that kind of change happens less often with a like, I'm going to change people and more like, oh, now that this technology is available, I'm not able to sleep at night and I'm going to open my phone up and see what's going on, right? It sort of happens very, very quietly. But then uh, while it's happening so quietly, along comes the notion of human nature as inherently fungible and malleable right. And often that's tinged with a little bit of, and you could make yourself, you know, you could right. make your own self, you could make yourself whatever you want. Along comes those notions of human nature in order to buttress, I would argue, the feelings of alienation we have once we've experienced the fact that we have become tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think in this slow process, the nefariousness of the politics behind expanded notions of human beings becomes much more obvious. And the example that I'll use here is uh, the medical advances that have led us to refigure mm -hmm. when human life begins and when it ends. Uh, we've talked about this before in a previous podcast but I personally think that at the end of life, you know, if I'm brain dead or something like that, I mean, honestly, I have a pretty low standard for when I think that I'm actually gone. But I definitely think that if I'm brain dead, I'm not a human being anymore. I'm certainly not myself. And I, there certainly are no moral obligations to me. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of debate about when life begins and what the status of the human being 
pre-birth is. And all of those are motivated by political projects, some of them capitalist projects Mm -hmm. that have slowly crept into our understanding of what exactly constitutes a human being and where the boundaries of a human being are. That only happened because of advances in medical technologies. This is one of the things that we're really going to Mm -hmm. have to be more attentive to is that that it's not as slow as we think that it is. You know, it's not as creeping as we think that it is. And then next thing you know, you wake up one day and Roe v. Wade is overturned. Right, right, right. Or or you don't wake up one day, but, you know, you're attached to a machine and the hospital's keeping you alive and bilking your family for tens of thousands of dollars for as long as they can. Right. And Ron DeSantis is sending thoughts and prayers. Yeah, right. (laughs) That leads me to think, Lee, that if the question is, what is human nature, then the first thing I want to say is, who wants to know? (laughs) Well, I want to know. I mean, this is kind of going back to your strategic essentialism. Like, I'm willing to say this is when I think a human life ends. I don't think that that's essential. I don't think that it's unchangeable. It is entirely in the service of the meaning-making project of my own life and the people that I love that I want to set those boundaries that I might change them one day as things change. But it is important to me to say, under these conditions, I am no longer a human being and I don't want to be kept alive as a sack of bones and and guts. Right. But that answer might be different if the one who wants to know is someone who is invested in and coming from the halls of power and structures of power that are directly invested in the maintenance of life and directing life towards certain ends, military, economic, mm-hmm. and, and so on, then I might give a completely different answer to what is human nature. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that the people who make that argument would be so willing to admit that they're engaging in strategic essentialism. I think of they would not. say this is human nature. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's up to us to point out the strategery. Yeah. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. (laughs) (laughs) It's always the man. (laughs) Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. During an episode from last season, season five, we spoke with Regina Rini about an essay she had written about AI and the treatment of AI. But something she said there struck me as relevant to our discussion about human nature today. And that is, she pointed out that historically, we have been so reluctant to expand our notion of what it is to be human to those who are so obviously human Because to expand our notion of human would be to give up the service that they provide for us as long as we do not acknowledge them as human. The reason I bring this up is it seems to me that one downside of a notion of human nature is that not only does it exclude others from being human, but it also runs the risk or in fact always 
performs a certain kind of structuring of those who count as human, a certain hierarchy of those who count as human. And I'm not sure that we can avoid that. I don't think that we can avoid that either. I I want to put what I'm about to say in some context. I think that we human beings grossly underestimate the brevity of the time we've been around. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, like we have been here for a blink in the yeah. history of the universe. <laughs> and there has been a lot of change. Like civilized human beings or you know, quote unquote civilized human beings have been around for a blink of a blink. And for whatever reason, it appears to be in our nature under the conditions that we're currently living to believe that we're going to be around for a long time or that we have been around for a long time. I don't think that we're going to be around for a long time. I think human beings will go extinct either through climate disaster or because we expand the notion of what counts as a human being so much that it effectively vacates the category of any meaningful content. So, you know, Elon Musk said, and uh, sorry to quote him, but I mean, <laughs> you know, like, the sun shines on a sleeping dog. Rocket you know? man. <laughs> yeah, right. But Elon Musk said in this documentary that was called Do You Trust This Computer, which, by the way, I recommend to everybody, you can watch it on YouTube. But Elon Musk, when he was talking about AI, basically said, either we're going to have to join with AI or be left behind. That I 100% agree with him on. And I do think that when we do this, if we do this, that I would call whatever that new thing is post-human. You know, we could also reach some kind of stage of enlightenment about our relationship with what we now call non-human animals. We could come to understand that Mm -hmm. we are animals first and humans is just a kind of little boutique category that we've been using for several thousand years, but we don't really need anymore if we're planning on keeping the planet alive or keeping our environment alive. So I don't personally worry, and this sounds quite dark, but it's just a fact. I don't worry about the extinction of human beings. I assume that that is the case and probably much sooner than most people are willing to reckon with. And I think the geologic record bears that out. Yeah. Like th- there have been a lot of species that go extinct for one reason or another. More in, since we've been alive than ever in history. Well, and we might be unique in that we've brought about the very conditions for our going extinct on our own, whereas the dinosaurs did not. Yeah. But it still brings me back. Okay, so I agree 100% with you, Lee. I'm not concerned about the extinction of the species. Although, as I've said before, I think it would really suck to be the last one. Yeah, I don't want to um, be around for that. But but before the last one, I you know I don't see any problem. Uh, maybe maybe the last few million, <laughs> which we might be actually because I see some problems right now. Um, yeah. Well, I I suppose it depends what causes the extinction. But I do find it interesting that you talked about this coming together of what today we call the human and AI as post-human in a strange way in order to hold on to the human Mm -hmm. there. I'm wondering, is there some reason to hold on to the human in that post-human or should we say that it is, in fact, post-AI? Well, it's not post-AI, I don't think. I think it would be pre-whatever we call the new being. So I think about what I call the post-human. I think about it 
in like the way that we think about the so-called missing link in human evolution, you know? Oh, okay. So like there's going to be something after what we now consider human beings, possibly cognitively enhanced, we're already physically enhanced, right? To the point where we would say this kind of being is different than what we used to call a human. We don't yet know what this is or what it's going to become. It is currently for this, you know, missing link step in evolution, post-human and pre-bracket question mark. Right. You know? So it wasn't that you wanted to hold on no, to no, the human, no. but rather that that so-called missing link would be still identifiably human in certain ways. And we could probably for a while trace the continuity between it and human beings as we understand human beings now. Right. I mean, I sometimes think that, okay, so I don't know if this is true or not, and there's a lot of debate about this, but you know, they say that the first person to live to 150 has already been born. Okay. Right. So just talking about aging, right? And I'm not even going to get into immortality. Like if we could, for example, completely replace our bodies or upload our consciousness to the crowd or any of those other sort of sci-fi options, but just a dramatically extended lifespan and health span. Let's say someone does live to 150, whatever. If we just go back three, four hundred years in human history where the average lifespan was whatever, 40, 50, I don't think that those people would say these human beings are human beings. I mean, I think that they would say that they're effectively immortal. I mean, especially when you fold in the fact that currently, you know, our students who are 20 years old have lived through effectively the same as like a thousand years of change compared to someone born in the 1300s or something. So they're 20 years. They've experienced generations of change. So, I mean, that's a stretch of what it would mean to call something a post-human. But even small technological advances like life extension or or anti-aging technologies already get us to a point where it's not unreasonable to say these are not the same kinds of beings as what we used to call human beings. Yeah, I guess a part of me wonders about this post-human from the perspective of what we were talking about earlier. If our definition of humanity is to always be fundamentally shaped by social relations, which include, in my view, the mediation of social relations through technology. Like writing is a technology and my consciousness, my awareness of who I am and in the world is in some sense very shaped by writing. You know, this is why I think Donna Haraway in her Cyborg Manifesto, she says like the poem is a technology, mm-hmm. right? And that part of the cyborgness she's talking about is just living in a society where the reading and writing of text is integral to how we understand ourselves and understand the world that we interact within. So I guess part of me wonders, aren't we really just talking about a quantitative acceleration of the already existing technological mediation of our existence? Or are we talking about something that's a break, a qualitative transformation of that? Like, to what extent is the post-human different than the already socially and technologically constituted humans that we are? I mean, I guess I'm just wondering if there's a lingering naturalization of a certain idea of the human in this definition that I thought we were trying to escape. I think that question can only be answered in retrospect, whether it was a quantitative change or a qualitative change. So yeah, I agree with you. Right now, when I'm talking about it, it just sounds like a 
amplification, acceleration, quantifiable change. But it may be the case that in retrospect, we go, oh, and that was the point that we sort of broke with Mm -hmm. what we used to consider human beings or what they used to consider human Mm -hmm. beings. When I say this, you're all going to say, of course you do. I think there's a deeper metaphysical issue here. Kill surprise. And here I'm going to try to woo Jason onto my side. It's an issue that goes back to Spinoza, I think. And (laughs) whenever I teach Spinoza's ethics, students are often really shocked and struggle with the fact that when he talks about bodies and gives a kind of physics of bodies and how they operate with one another and so on, there is no concern at all for what constitutes the smallest body. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this is somehow frustrating is because if you could find, like, let's say an atom is the smallest body, and you could figure out how an atom operates and, you know, what its forces are and charges and so on, then you could do a mechanics of what happens with two atoms and what happens with three, and you could build then an entire physics out of that. If you have no notion of what the smallest body is, then how do you build up this mechanics so the students can concern goes. Or if the smallest bodies don't act with any kind of regularity or discernible regularity. Right. Or, well, as he says, what if for every smallest body that's composed itself of even smaller bodies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's turtles all the way down. It's, it's turtles all the way down. But also what this leads to is a notion that the question of what is it, this body I'm pointing to, this thing I'm pointing to, the question of what is it is more a question of what are you after in your inquiry than it is what is its nature, like what is it really? And the second then thing this leads to, and now I'm going to use a Deleuzean word, and I think this is why Deleuze was so interested in Spinoza, every single individual is part of a larger grouping of individuals in which it plays a role. Mm -hmm. That is what he would call an assemblage. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about humans as being in an assemblage, then all of this, the technology, the technological mediation, social relations and mediated social relations, economic relations and mediated economic relations, would all be crucial in the assemblage. And then if you want to ask, what is that thing in the assemblage, and you're pointing to the human— the question gets then a little slippery. Like, mm-hmm. why do you want to know? Why? Mm-hmm. W- w- what's the interest in this? Do you want to make another one? Do you want to put it in a different assemblage? Do you want to link two assemblages? What do you want to know? And then the answer to the question, what is it, will always be different. And so all of this is kind of a long-winded and metaphysical, which is probably to say the same thing twice, <laughs> answer to your position, Lee, that this new being this new species or maybe species doesn't even work anymore will still play a role in some assemblage and maybe the assemblage has transformed or we and ai have joined with different assemblages and so on but still the fundamental question of the assemblage i think continues couldn't agree more 100 <laughs> percent I mean, it reminds me a lot of the history of racial categories, right? I mean, race is a meaningful way to divide the human species currently. 
you know, but it's not a concept that's been around forever. And it's a very weird concept of all the things to pick out, to divide us, Mm -hmm. you know, skin color and hair texture and those sorts of things are very weird. Like, why wouldn't we pick out significant things like size, you know, Mm -hmm. or, you know, I mean, why wouldn't wouldn't we divide talents, intelligence, you know, why Mm -hmm. wouldn't we divide the human species that way? When you say and everyone does this, right? When they're talking about race, well, what if we divided people by eye color, then try to assign all of these character traits or cognitive capacities to people on the basis of their eye color? Everyone can see immediately how ridiculous that is. But nevertheless, we exist as racialized human beings in an assemblage where you cannot say that this is a completely fabricated category that has no meaning. Now, there may come a day where we can... Again, in retrospect, look back and say that was a completely fabricated category that had no meaning. (laughs) We are now different kinds of beings. They used to assign themselves racialized groups. That doesn't make any sense. You know, we were functioning in a different assemblage, to use Deleuze's term. But what Rick's point is, which is that when we're trying to pick out things and assigning them meaningful categories, there is always an agenda behind it. Mm -hmm. Right. And speaking of assemblages and essences, I just want to point out that, Lee, you have your AI post-human thing. Rick Mm -hmm. has his metaphysic thing. I feel like I don't have my thing yet. (laughs) Because I think just exactly what we're saying, I have, you know, I have my interests. I brought up Spinoza more than once. I bring up sort of Marxist type things. But I feel like in terms of assemblages, I've yet to figure out what my thing is going to be in relation to this particular assemblage. And I'm I'm very excited to see it emerge. And I'm very excited to find out what the thing is that I get to say and everyone gets to sort of make the same face. Like, oh yeah, he's doing that again. Uh, because, and I think this goes back to, you know, what we're sort of saying that a part of what being human is, is so transformable and malleable and relational that even though we have constant interests and so on, that we see these things change in our own experience again and again. We become different versions of ourselves in different contexts. So given that, it's very bizarre that we ever believe in something like human nature because we would never want to ascribe it to ourselves except strategically. You know, I think this goes back to Rick's point, like who's asking? Because maybe all questions of essences are always questions about which one and and who wants to know. But I think specifically around human nature, it's clear that the question cannot be separated with who's asking. We know that because I don't think anyone would want to be pinned to any definition of human nature because they recognize on some level – that we shift in different contexts and even the people who think we're all competitive, right, as as Lee said early on, have a real trouble answering the question, then why would anyone ever have a baby? Mm-hmm. Which is right. just a huge disadvantage <laughs> in the battle of all against all and can't be understood in that way of thinking. Yeah, and I mean, it seems to me that one interest in a notion of a human nature or this is human nature is to answer, as I have said on this podcast before, the three basic questions of life. Can I eat it? Can I fuck it? Will it kill me? Oh, four. Will it kill me? And will it make me high? But, you know, other animals seem to go around just fine knowing what to eat, what to have sex with, and how to get high if they want to without seeming to have to rely on some static notion of a nature that belongs to what they are. 
I agree with you both. I think in many ways that essential definitions of human nature are categories that are binding, but somehow the binder is never bound. Right. Even people who are 100% committed and dogmatically committed to their definitions of human nature still believe that they themselves are not bound by it, that everyone Mm -hmm. else is bound by it. (laughs) And so, yeah, it is in many ways – Again, just repeating what you guys have already said, it is a strategic question and who is asking and why is the real question. And I think that not being bound by a definition, I think that's very integral to a certain kind of hierarchy that's connected to things like racism, where you see – I mean, it's sort of the Star Trek version of racism where like, you know, Star Trek, the human beings travel around the universe and they meet Klingons and Klingons are always going to be warlike and Vulcans are always going to be logical, but only the human beings can be both warlike and logical. They, mm-hmm. they transcend all sort of cultural definitions. And this is the way in which a lot of contemporary versions of racism function where you see everyone except the person who's speaking is locked into their own cultural practices and so on and so forth. And that being not bound, being the one who can transcend is how the hierarchy itself is maintained, right? So that, you know, it's another version of what Foucault called the empirical transcendental doublet, right? That we're always playing both sides of the human nature game. Like on the one hand, we're describing people and we're saying, oh, look, look at them. They're all being competitive. But then in describing them, I'm kind of placing myself outside of that because yeah. I'm actually the one who has neutral and supposedly objective knowledge about the inherent competitive nature of human beings. So I'm transcending it and we're constantly doing that. And to some extent, I mean, Foucault would argue that the whole nature of the human sciences are predicated on that, which is why you can do like an anthropology of an anthropology department. Right. And you can do an yeah. anthropology of an anthropology of an anthropology. You know, you can, you can, it's a bad infinity. You can keep doing it. You can keep putting... Once again, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> it's turtles all the way down. You can keep putting the human beings on the side of the observable while you're observing. But I think there's also a way in which, as I was saying, the transcending, non-transcending is a lot of the way in which contemporary racism is articulated because I think contemporary racism, as many people have argued, like Etienne Balibar, often uses cultures in the place of nature, right? It uses the idea that, oh, it's this part of the world, you know, Afghanistan, they're always going to be warlike and fighting each other. And that's why, you know, we have to treat them the way we do. It's their culture. But that just shows, I think, that one of the ways in which this racialized and hierarchical part of notions of human nature arises out of the fact that human nature is actually an unmarked signifier that means white. Mm-hmm. And that whiteness then just becomes what it is to be human, and then everything else is determined on the basis of it, all of this not being marked ever and made explicit. Yeah, Sartre didn't, of course, use the word human nature, but in being in nothingness, you know, he says nothingness sleeps at the heart of, well, I'm going to say human nature like a worm. And what he meant there is that in his terms, we're always sort of being what we are in the mode of not being it or not being what we are in the mode of being it. That is to say, we always assume, or at least our experience of ourselves, is that we have an option to be otherwise at all times. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is what Jason is calling transcendence, but that just can't be essentialized. It just can't be captured. And 
in as much as we might feel strategically motivated to assign essentialized characteristics to other human beings, in that very project of assigning them, we are always going to be experiencing the possible transcendence of those categories. So again, binding but not bound. Damn. So unfortunately, our bartender has a strategic interest in getting these humans out of the bar. Before we leave, Jason, do you have any final thoughts about human nature? I'm just really glad no one made any references to the Paul McCartney, Michael Jackson <laughs> duet song. <laughs> that we made it throughout. Why? Why? <laughs> so I'm glad that human beings can change and we can overcome the temptation to make cheap references to bad pop songs. So, <laughs> Well, listeners, if it's in your nature to help out this podcast, you can do so. Oh, I was going to go in a self-interest direction. <laughs> That's a good one. You can do so by going over to our Patreon page and signing up for one of our support levels. We've got several there as cheap as $4, but we especially encourage people to sign up for our designated driver level. That's at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. And because I'm not a self-interested rat bastard, I'll pay for the taxi tonight. Count me in. <laughs> <laughs>